Hi, this is Paul Carr. A couple things before we get into this week's podcast. First, everyone at True Media recognizes what's happening in our country right now. We stand with millions of others against racism, against injustice, and against violence. Black lives matter. And speaking for myself, I barely know what to say. I'm, I'm not black. I haven't experienced horrible injustices because of my skin color. So I'll just encourage everyone, including me, to listen to those who have to hear hurting voices, to listen to their thoughts and their pleas, and try to find ways to bridge the gaps. Maybe we build relationships with people who don't look like us, or engage with organizations who are fighting for justice, or donate time or money as we're able. By listening, by helping, I hope we can find ways to move forward and be stronger together. Hello, and welcome to episode 27 of Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr from True Media, and before introducing today's guest, a bit of business background to set the stage. In 1996, the English company Opta began analyzing Premier League matches, and they eventually became the leader in soccer event tracking data, touches, passes, etc. And if you know soccer data and analytics at all, you're probably familiar with Opta data and Twitter accounts like Opta Joe. We at True Media partnered with Opta to create ProVision, a stats platform used by 70 plus clubs around the world for player recruitment, match analysis, advanced scouting, etc. Opta was then acquired by Perform Group in 2013, and last year Stats Incorporated merged with Perform Content to create the current company, Stats Perform. All that. Roundabout way of getting me to today's guest, Ben McCreel, Head of Team Performance Product Strategy at Stats Perform. Ben joined Opta in 2016, and he's been leading their club product side ever since. Before that, he worked for five different English clubs, including Everton and Fulham, so he knows the soccer analytics world from both the club side and the business side. I've known Ben for several years, and in our conversation here, we'll talk about what teams are doing with data while leagues are shut down how he got into sports analytics, getting his first club job with Everton, how his role changed as he changed clubs, the best advice he received as an analyst, keys to communicating data at clubs, leaving the club role to join Opta, what he does now at Stats Perform, the roles AI and computer vision will play in the future of analytics, the state of analytics in cricket and rugby, why he roots for Boston teams, and joining Fulham right before Clint Dempsey's famous chip against Juventus. Then True Media's Albert Larcata will join me to react and wrap things up. Without further ado, here's the expected value conversation with Stats Perform's Ben McCreel. We're joined now on Expected Value by Ben McCreel, head of Team Performance Product Strategy at Stats Perform. Ben, welcome to the show. We will get into exactly what you do at Stats Perform, kind of how you got here. Uh, in a moment, but first, just how are you doing over there in the UK during all that's going on with COVID and whatnot? Well, thanks first for having me on the pod. It's always good to chat to you. Yeah, uh, yeah, we're doing okay. We're doing okay. Um, things are starting to lift a little bit this week. Um, we've had a few announcements over the last seven days or so that's uh, opened things up a, l- a little bit, and that's allowed a little bit more interaction with people, which is which is always uh, which is always good. Uh, I'm particularly pleased I'm able to get back out on the golf course, which is uh, <laughs> a major tick in the box. Priorities. Um, yep. So, first, 
Absolutely. First bit of athletic activity has, uh, has been ticked off, so that's good. So I think we're starting to we're starting to see a little bit of normality, very small amount, but a little bit of normality now. And, and from a sport perspective, um, we've had some announcements this week that uh, have kind of rubber stamped the return of uh, major sport, particularly soccer and, and the Premier League. And the Championship have also announced when they're planning to restart. So, um, so yeah, from us, from a sport perspective uh, it's good to see things reappearing on our sporting calendars and you're working with you know dozens and dozens of clubs kind of across europe as we'll get into how are from your perspective how are teams handling this or maybe what are they doing from kind of a data especially analysis perspective during these times with for the most part without games to look at yeah it's it's obviously tough because you know they're they're all uh, as everyone else is in their own homes um and so uh, despite what you know, maybe the perception is that people are isolated in their own computers normally and, and beavering away. You know, there is a lot of interaction between coaches and analysts and, and the players on a daily basis within uh, training ground environments. So having that removed does present a lot of challenges. I think what a lot of the analysts are focusing on at the moment, a lot of uh, recruitment staff are focusing on is is those longer term projects. It's, it's the work that we all would love to be doing at, at various points mm-hmm. in the year that we never get the chance to. Um, looking at trends in performance, uh, looking at projecting whether it's your own talent or looking at uh, potential uh, transfer targets for the future, you know, really delving into a lot more depth into those players. But even that brings a lot of uncertainty. You know, we don't know when the transfer windows are going to be. We don't know what budgets teams are going to have to to spend in the transfer windows. We assume that a lot of that's going to be restricted. So teams are going to be probably keeping a, a, a vast majority of their squads moving into whenever next season is. So although there's time now and there has been time to look at those bigger projects, there still carries a lot of uncertainty as to what the future holds for these teams and, and what decisions they're going to be able to make. Let's kind of trace your career path because I think it kind of parallels the rise of data, especially in soccer over the last 10 15 years or so let's just start how did you get into sports data and analytics i think maybe it had something to do with your youth hockey career too yeah yeah so um you know obviously grew up a huge sports fan and as we'll probably get into you know that that covers a wide range of sports obviously grew up a huge soccer fan um growing up in manchester um huge manchester united fan and very very quickly from a very early age engaged in a lot of different sports whether that was soccer or rugby or cricket but the main sport I played uh, was field hockey and you know managed to, to play to a, to a pretty good level and so I was playing at an international level for, for Wales from uh, the age of 14 through the youth setup and into the senior setup and mm-hmm. and so was kind of very early on exposed to I guess a very stripped back basic version of what a professional athlete gets to see field hockey is not a sport that has a huge amount of resources and budget but we did have an analyst and we did have video support and we did have uh, you know physios and sports science staff and all those kind of things as well so so from a very early age I was exposed to you know reviewing opponents and watching video on our next opposition and and looking at trends in in the data and and so that's kind of where it started for me really was was seeing it as an athlete and, and trying to engage with an athlete and you know, I wasn't the most physically gifted player. Um, you know, technically was was pretty decent to get to that level, but wasn't you know massively gifted. And so a lot of I think what got me to that level of of 
the sport was was actually the way I saw the game tactically and the way that I understood my opponents through watching video and understanding where I could gain an edge because I knew physically and you know maybe technically I wasn't the most talented player on the team. And so I guess the, the crescendo of that was um, I played in a, a European Championships um, in Italy and I got injured uh, halfway through the tournament and wasn't going to be able to play for the rest of the tournament. And so sort of gravitated towards the analyst and, and spent a bit of time with him, helping him put together video packages for our next opponents, doing a bit of scouting on our next opponents. And that really started my interest in, in this whole industry. And so that kind of, I guess, kick-started my, my interest in it. And uh, that led to going on to university and, and studying sports science and analytics. Um, things kind of went from there. So your first job with a club was as an academy analyst at Everton in 07. How did that come about? What exactly did you do on that kind of entry-level job there? So uh, I went to Liverpool John Moores University uh, to study sports science and, uh, and performance analysis. And they have great partnerships with, with both the clubs in Liverpool, uh, both Liverpool and Everton. And so I was uh, kind of given an opportunity to initially go and intern with the club. And that was, you know, the most basic analyst internship that many of the colleagues that I've had in this industry for a long time, we all kind of started in the same place. It's, you know, taking a camera out to watch a under 12s game with a tripod and filming a game and dealing with the parents and things like that. Yeah, uh, wanting yeah. DVDs of their kids, you know, all that kind of stuff. So the really glamorous side of yeah. just performance analysis. But, um, but yeah, I spent best part of two and a half years at Everton uh, in the end and, just a fantastic grounding in analysis, in the culture of football. Everton have a fantastic academy. And at that point, the manager was David Moyes, who was very invested in the development of youth talent as well, but also very invested in performance analysis. And, you know, a lot of the guys that worked for David in those years, when Everton were probably at their most successful period in a long time, playing in Europe and um, competing at the top end of the league, a lot of the guys who were in his analysis team have gone on to to have hugely successful careers uh, working for some of the biggest clubs in the world. And and I think his approach to analysis and his diligence kind of fed into the way that Everton as a club approached it, the investment they made in it, alongside their investment in developing young talent. So the next 10 years or so you were with Everton, Fulham, Reading, Norwich, Burnley in various different roles. How did your role yeah. evolve? Analyst at the beginning, I know there's more of a scouting component later. How did that evolve over that decade with five clubs? Yeah, so five clubs and probably at least double the number of managers. <laughs> so, but that's that's how things go. So yeah, I kind of got got that grounding at Everton in in academy analysis and, and really focusing on supporting that that fantastic development process that they had in place, working with young players and and some some really good coaches. And then moved on to Fulham to initially take on a very similar role in the academy. You know, again, a, a club that uh, was was on the rise at that time, was in the Europa League latter stages and went on to the final the year I, I joined the club. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll um, get to that. Yeah, we'll get to that. And so initially went in uh, went to work in the academy uh, again as a as a uh, an analyst working with mainly with the under twenty ones and the under eighteen team. So those players who are kind of really on the brink of, of first-team football, whether that's with the club itself or, or potentially with loans, 
And that was really a combination of opposition analysis, developmental analysis, looking at, you know, really focusing on the player rather than maybe the team structure. Um, you know, how can we improve the development of players and how can we feed back that process? And you know, one of the things that uh, Everton did and Fulham did at the academy level with analysis was really build it into their teaching process. A lot of the kids would come, would spend a lot of time, particularly under 18 level, getting their education at the club as well as getting their football education at the club. Uh, and one of the things they did a great job of was integrating our performance analysis processes, our review of their performance, and both from a data and a video perspective, into their education process. Uh, so we actually, on a Monday, would include a data analysis piece within their classroom sessions. Um, and they would have to go through the data and go through their video and provide like a written report of how they think they performed and how it compared to their previous performances and that kind of thing. So we were really able to get these kids to buy in at the very early stages of their, their football development into why reflecting on your own performance is so important. That was you know, a brilliant way to, for me to engage in, in working with players, particularly at that kind of younger age. And then moved on into the first team. Um, so after a year of working in the academy at Fulham, uh, spent another year and a half uh, working in the first team as uh, mainly as an opposition analyst, primarily focused on going through the last three or four games of the opposition, breaking down the video, working with the scouts on what they'd seen, and then getting into the data, looking at trends uh, over the season, over periods of time for oppositions. I'm pulling together an opposition analysis pack for the manager and the coaching staff, uh, and then ultimately to the players. And um, so that kind of evolved actually into me going to a lot of games. Um, so in the last sort of six to nine months of my time at Fulham, I actually wasn't there on match days for our own games. Mm. I was watching our next opposition mm -hmm. on the same day. So I tended to only get to see us play if it was a midweek game or if uh, it was a Europa League game, I would be in the dressing room uh, and be at the at the games but actually on most Premier League weekends I would be watching our next opposition the, the team we were going to play in the next game writing a scouting report um, so that kind of was what started me on the path to getting into player scouting and, and player recruitment uh, which is what I moved on to, uh, to Reading uh, to take on at Reading I was taking on the responsibility that the club had just got promoted back to the Premier League after a couple of years away and uh, myself and a, a someone else from Fulham went to the club to set up a new scouting department uh, and we wanted to build that from a data first perspective the club was very invested in trying to get that edged you know we weren't going to be able to outspend many of the teams in the league but we wanted to try and take an approach where we could try and find value in in the types of players that we could get and that was actually primarily focused on trying to target markets that other teams and other teams in the league were ne were necessarily not going to be looking at so looking at you know the Czech Republic and the second Bundesliga sure, yeah. and those types of competitions uh, where we found, we thought we could get value. And that was really from a data-led approach. We had a very small team who could actually get out and watch these players. And most weekends, it was only two of us who were able to go and watch players in Europe, particularly. So most weekends, we were both on flights to Germany and the Czech Republic and all these countries. And that was had to be led by data. So we had to start with, well, who are the types of players and the profile of players that we want to find? How do they fit the playing style and the system that we want to play with, with our manager? And then let's make sure we go to the right games. You know, let's not go and cast the net out wide like some of the big clubs can do because they have more staff and more reach. 
we had two people to cover most of Europe. And so we had to make sure we were going to the right games and watching the right players. And, and data was the way we did that, really. So let me ask a couple things to pull away from that. One is that you came in as more or less a data guy and then kind of expanded through all these roles into a little more of an all-encompassing scouting role and incorporating data, traditional scouting, et cetera. That track to me just says that you obviously you learned a lot through all that process. So I guess what's your advice to someone if I'm looking for an analyst type role with a club or, or you know an entry level thing, kind of where you came in? What's your advice uh, to someone trying to get in or just starting in this field now if they want to look to you know continue to grow their career and in, in something along the lines of what you did? Yeah, I mean, I think um, the routes to get into to clubs now are much greater than they were when I started. Mm-hmm. There's much more varying ways that you can get into this industry than the, than there were sort of ten years ago. It's also a lot more competitive. I'll yeah. say that you know the the number of people who want to get into this industry and the, the number of people who want to work um, in professional sport is is obviously just yearly increasing. The best piece of advice I ever got, and I, I honestly I come back to this all the time, that the first youth coach I worked with at Everton said to me. Pretty early on, and I must have been a really arrogant, you know, <laughs> university student who thought he knew everything at yeah. that point. Coming in with all this data and video analysis skills, and thinking I could, you know, tell the players what to do. Maybe I don't know. But um, he sat me down and, and said, "Look, the best thing you can do right now is forget everything you thought you knew about the sport mm. and learn from the people who know, you know, the people around you, basically." And what he was kind of saying to me was your view of the game as a fan from the 18, 19 years at that point that I've been watching soccer gives you one perception of the game. But actually, the people that you're surrounded by now working in this environment, the coaches, the former players, the current players, they see the game very differently. And that is the best piece of advice I was ever given in this industry because I then spent the next 10 years and I still am doing it now just trying to soak up the experience and the knowledge from everyone around me, whether that's players and coaches who know the game inside out, know how to break down tactical scenarios, know how to solve problems from a tactical or, or you know, um, player technical perspective, or whether it's, you know, other analysts, you know, now I'm surrounded by data scientists and AI engineers and engineers and I'm, you know, certainly not an, an AI scientist or right. engineer, yep. but I have to be able to com- converse and communicate in their language. So I think the first, the first piece of advice is really to soak up knowledge and soak up experiences from the people around you who have different experiences and, and have different knowledge sets and, and can help you fill the gaps in the knowledge that you have. You know, one of the things that we look at a lot when when I've been hiring people in the past for roles within clubs or roles. Um, you know, within the business I'm in now, is actually less to look at what they've done as from an education perspective. That ticks the first couple of boxes, and they have to have that base knowledge right. set yeah. and skill set. But actually, what have they done off their own back? You know, how have they extended themselves to go and learn the things that they don't learn from a technical application perspective? Have they done coaching badges? Have they gone and coached their youth? you know, their local youth soccer team? Have they have they done an internship with a club for a few months to, to learn the processes? You know, have they actively written blogs about the content, about the things that they see in the game? 
they're the things that interest me. They're the things that tell me that somebody has extended themselves and extended the knowledge that they can bring to the the role that they're you know that we're asking them to fulfill. So, so I think that that's really the biggest thing that I look for in people. Um, as I said, in terms of like how you get into this industry now, I think the evolution of AI and and data science that we're currently in, machine learning skill sets. You know, that's going to be the next wave of skill that comes into our industry is a significant growth in in AI engineers and machine learning technicians and I think that's what will mm-hmm. that's what will start to break in but because it's sport and because people want to work in sport there will continue to be huge competition in that industry in that part of the industry as well yeah. uh, so you have to find a way to stand out we talk a lot about communicating data. We had our, whole, our last podcast was about data viz and how to make good data viz, et cetera. When you were with these clubs, you're obviously communicating with people who are less analytically inclined or data inclined than you are. What's a key or two that you found in getting your message or just expressing something to someone who might not, uh, who's a little wary, I guess, of kind of where you're coming from? It's really one thing, but it's it's kind of, it can spin out in multiple forms, I guess. Um, it's a lot of the guys that I work with are sick of hearing this from me, but it, it's kind of tactical relevancy and tactical application. Mm -hmm. You have to speak, you have to present your, your information in the language that your coach or your player speaks in. And ultimately they speak in the language of the sport They they speak in football or soccer or, or baseball or whatever it is. They speak in that language. That's what they've grown up with. That's what they're used to. So the key to whether it's presenting uh, an analysis on the opposition or it's presenting the output of a model um, and how that can apply to a process, it has to it has to be labelled with terminology that they're used to, um, and it has to be something that they can see and immediately understand that it applies to a tactical concept, the improvement of uh, a player player's technical ability or at least a projection of what their technical ability is going to be able to enable them to do to ultimately impact on pitch, on field performance. You know, that kind of presentation of that information in their language, not in our technical language, even things like presenting a table of numbers is pointless at this stage. You know, a lot of that stuff just doesn't get digested. One of the things I learned very early on was that, but also... It's amazing what you can do if you put data on a pitch. Right. Like if you present data in something visual that they immediately react to because they're used to seeing things on a pitch, they can start to kind of process it quicker and and understand the application a lot quicker than putting it in a table or putting it in a graph or, you know, those things. That works really well for analysts and data scientists and the people who handle the data every day. But ultimately, they're not the people who are going to make the decisions that are going to impact on field performance. And that's what we're all here for, is, is to try and support and change what happens on the pitch. And, and so, yeah, just sticking some numbers or sticking a visualization on top of a, a green pitch with some white lines, yeah. it's amazing how quickly people can understand what we're trying to say. Yeah, make it actionable, make it pretty. I've had the same experience on TV where I can I can tell somebody 53% of his shots were from the left side of the box or something like that. But if you just show them a shot chart, like it's so much easier, it makes a lot more sense. I think the broadcast thing is really interesting as well because you know certainly my my current role, I'm still very focused on on field performance, but I also work within a business that has huge amount of 
I work in um, the media space and working with broadcasters. And, yeah. and actually, there is a lot of crossover in the way that we present information mm-hmm. because ultimately our coaches and our fans, uh, our coaches and our players are more used to engaging in content in the way that we present it in a broadcast yeah. than they are in the way that we present it as analysts and as data scientists. You know, So I think our coaches and our players are obviously vastly more educated fans um, but ultimately, they're still uh, from that background rather yep. than necessarily being from a data background. Yeah, so. and you still have to be able to get it across to them quickly. I mean, I've talked to so many people yeah. like you, analysts. I've said this before, I think. What they do is so similar to kind of what I was doing at ESPN, where I've got to get the talent, the producers to buy into this. I've got to be able to explain it to them quickly, and they've got to be able to get it on TV quickly. In the same way, an analyst has to you know, explain something to a coach quickly because they're going to have to communicate it further. So yeah, lots of similar roles in all those things. So let's move on to, in 2016, you joined what was then Opta. I'm curious about just the general jump from, so you're going from the club world to the business world or to a data company. So many people, as you you said, you know, working for a club is like, that seems like the thing. And then you made this jump uh, where you moved over the data side. I don't ask this in a questioning or challenging way, but like, what was the, why make that move basically? It's a good question. Uh, It's it's something a lot of my friends ask me all all the time. Um, I think it, it's definitely working at a club is is certainly um, the pinnacle, I think, and you know I still consider it to be the pinnacle. Uh, mm-hmm. Working in a professional elite sporting environment is an incredible experience, and you know I was very fortunate to work in sort of five different environments. It is an incredible place to be. It's also a very very challenging place to be, mm-hmm. um, and that can be very good, but it also you know. It was not my choice to leave each of those five clubs. Right. You know, a couple of them it was, but not all of them it was. The nature of the business side of, of the game means that you are, particularly in, in analyst roles, you're tied to the performance on the pitch. And your future, your livelihood, your family's livelihood is kind of tied to sticking that ball in the net mm-hmm. uh, more than your opposition. That brings with it a lot of uncertainty and, and a lot of challenges. So, you know, part of it was tied to that, but also part of it was tied to, you know, when you work for a club, you're often very cocooned in that environment. It's a very isolated environment. For a lot of reasons, you shut yourself off from the outside world because the cadence of working in professional sport is very different to any other job. You're working extremely strange hours, but you're also having to be very sort of secretive to the rest of the industry because you're trying to protect your IP and trying to improve performance and try and win games and so that makes it very difficult what kind of drew me to crossing to the dark side of the fence (laughs) as as it's sometimes called was just that ability to see the rest of the industry to see Mm -hmm. how all clubs around the world work you know i've been very fortunate in the last four years to go to pretty much every country in the world and see how professional sports teams work on a daily basis and speak to coaches and um and athletes and you know decision makers in in various sports and in various parts of the world and and that was that was a real draw for me was was to try and see how everyone else did it but also slightly egotistically i also wanted to affect more of the industry than just individual teams you know i wanted to be able to support the way that all clubs work in some in some way in, in very in very small ways but in some way i wanted to 
work with people to try and help everybody in the way that they use analytics and data science and AI. And also, you know, the resources that I now am able to tap into to try and build some of these concepts and build some of these ideas, you know, vastly outweighs any kind of resource I ever had in the clubs that I worked for. You know, it was either me or it was me and a couple of people that were able to kind of build these ideas out. Right. Yeah. You know, as stats perform now, we have over 50 AI data scientists. We have over 300 engineers. Um, and so the ability to take these ideas from concept stage all the way through to delivering something that can be applicable to over, you know, 500 teams around the world that we work with, that's hugely exciting. And, and knowing that that stuff is being used every day is, is a real motivator, I guess, um, for, for what we do. So you started to touch on it there. Let's get into what you're doing with Stats Perform. Your title, at least for the moment, will go Head of Team Performance Product Strategy for Stats Perform. What does that mean? What are you working with on a, you know, a daily, weekly basis? The business is, is kind of split up in some ways into the, the way that we deliver the basically the underlying data that we collect as a company into these different sectors. So, you know, we talked about we work with media and broadcast companies. That's where a lot of people will know Opta data and, and what we do as a business because they'll have seen it on broadcast. They'll have seen it on, um, you know, in media outlets. They'll have seen it on their phone generating the, the live scores and uh, fixer information that they look in on apps. So that's fundamentally where a lot of people know us from. We also do a lot in the, the betting space. Uh, we have a huge betting part of our business. The business, the part of the business that I'm focused on is is absolutely on team performance. It's on the professional sports world and how we can use the data uh, to influence what happens on the pitch. So my role is to um, devise the, the product and uh, data strategy for how we do that. How do we take this enormous uh, data set that we have access to across you know multiple sports and how do we create ai models uh, data science models on top of that data to enrich it to give it context to give it application and then build tools and solutions that our uh, teams can use and leagues and federations can use to either break the data down for opposition analysis purposes or it could be to identify players to scout and to recruit we're working a lot at the moment in basketball on looking at ways that we can use the same data to um you know identify players for the draft and, and how players could be applied uh, you know how they can move to the nba and and what uh, what that takes to adapt their performance from from college to the nba so those types of principles are things that we you know we're focused on and, and you know my day-to-day -day job it's it's incredibly varied. I'm very fortunate. It can vary from meeting with Premier League teams to NBA teams to uh, teams in the Bundesliga in Germany, kind of understanding their processes and understanding how they work, what models and metrics they want to develop, how they would use a software solution to, to kind of work through their processes, to working with our AI team on developing uh, model concepts how do we turn this data into something that's tactically applicable um, to working with the engineers to make sure that we can deliver that into a solution. So, you know, very varied day to day, um, but ultimately all focused on 
how do we utilize this data set in the best way to, to help teams improve performance? So you've got a few different levels of things that teams would come to you for, whether it's uh, your edge product or the provision one we collaborate on. You've got a few different products and teams are using this in a few different ways. As you said, recruitment, match analysis, advanced scouting, et cetera. So you're trying to just kind of meet the needs of a whole bunch of different teams, depending on their budget goals, et cetera, right? Yeah. And, and the roles of the people that we're working with as well, you know, mm-hmm. that there's tiers of clubs in terms of the investment that they're making in in this area, uh, whether that's uh, in the people that they hire and the types of people they hire, you know, the skill sets. If we're working with a club who um, has an AI data scientist or, or um, someone who's a data engineer, then they're probably going to want the data in some kind of raw format in an API that they can right. query and they can pull and build their own models and, and things from. Or we'll work with teams who, you know, want to have a, uh, a solution that they can query that information uh, through and uh, link it to video and, and be able to analyze that like the ProVision solution that we work on with, with you guys at True Media. And all, you know, kind of shifting now into the AI world where we, we want to present these AI models, which are, which are more prescriptive. It's more about prescribing that information to, uh, to teams and using the AI models to, to showcase where they should be looking, uh, what type of trends are happening, rather than asking the users to maybe go and search for it themselves. So, you know, there's different use cases for different people, for different types of clubs, for different sports as well. You know, different sports often require different things. So. Let's touch on a couple of those different sports because Stats Perform, as you said, does a whole bunch of different stuff. Cricket, rugby, uh, the European ones that I think I and our audience a little less familiar with perhaps what is the state of cricket analytics right now i know there's a ton of data because i have a novice level understanding i watched on tv now and then and there's so many graphics and so much data and it seems really interesting to me what's the state of cricket analytics right now now we certainly enjoyed educating you guys yeah uh true media on cricket we've had some fun doing that so Mm -hmm. yeah cricket's uh, cricket's interesting with with data much like baseball it's it's grounded in data um the whole sport is historically tied to scorecards and the history of right. uh, results and the history of um, leaderboards, you know, all of these things are, are kind of greatly tied to the sport. And there's a, uh, a book that comes out every year called uh, the wisdom cricket almanac, which mm-hmm. is a, uh, a look back on the previous year and, and the wisdom books go back probably hundreds of years now i think um and they're actually collector's items you know the old ones are real collector's items now and that book is about the history of the game and it's all grounded in data Hmm. the challenge that cricket has now is that despite the enormous amount of data that we have very similar to what uh what we have in major league baseball is how do you take that scorecard data that we've been collecting for all of these years and add to it and add further context to it and use some of the the capabilities that we have with new technology to advance that data set slightly differently to what the situation we have in soccer where that's only become as more relevant recently you know previously soccer was just about the goals that were scored and maybe then shots and cards and corners and stuff there wasn't a lot more to it whereas with cricket and baseball we've had all this history of a good level of data a real powerful level of data so with cricket analytics now, we're, we're really starting to focus on things like the influx of tracking data. You know, we now have a good amount of ball tracking data uh, in cricket, particularly at the international level and some of the big um, T20 tournaments around the world. There is um, coming, we started with the World Cup last year, but 
there's going to be an influx of player tracking data as well, being able to map out fielding positions mm -hmm. and, okay. and the gaps uh, in the field and things, which is a, is a key thing uh, when you're looking at cricket analytics. So I think it's going to be a, an influx, a little bit like you've had in, in baseball with, mm -hmm. with uh, StatCast and um, really starting to see more around you know ball locations uh hit locations with tracking the ex you know fielding tracking as well uh expected cap probabilities those types of things i think are going to really uh, develop in cricket but yeah i think that will be inextricably linked to the growth of the shorter forms of the game i'm a cricket traditionalist i like the five-day matches which i know that a lot of people can't get their heads around but you know the influx of the sort of three-hour game the, the t20 yeah. games also lends itself to this new audience of uh, of younger people who are looking for those snippets of information. They're looking for the highlights. Mm -hmm. and, and often what's tied to that is those big statistics, those big moments that you can tie to a, to an interesting data point. And so I think from a, a fan perspective, that's where it's going. And, and in the performance side, it's continued investment in the science of the sport and looking at you know load management for bowlers, is a big thing that's that's been trending for the last few years. And then look, probably going down the path that baseball has gone in terms of we're trying to hit bigger shots, bigger sixes, bigger fours. There's a lot more boundaries hit in the game now, similar to, to the rise of, of home runs over the last couple of years in, in baseball. So I think there'll be a lot more analysis of shot trajectories and, uh, and things like that. Launch, launch angle, I imagine, will come into yeah. to cricket as it has done in baseball over the last few years. Yeah, I can see all these MLB concepts just almost applying directly to cricket. That'll be interesting to watch. What about rugby? I mean, it's closer to American football, obviously, in style. And mm -hmm. the NFL is behind baseball and basketball in the U.S. I think it's gaining quickly as more data is available. Where is rugby kind of on this analytics spectrum? Rugby's had an interesting path, actually, because um, rugby union particularly only became professional in 1996. So it's a very young professional sport uh, compared to a lot of our other sports. Uh, rugby league was professional for a lot longer than that, but the union has had a much quicker rise. You know, it became professional in 96 and then very quickly overtook rugby league as the most heavily invested in code and the difference uh, the between rugby types. quickly the difference between union and league would be <laughs> very quickly rugby union has 15 players rugby league has 13 players okay. rugby union is a lot more complicated in terms of the rules okay. um, rugby league has more similar kind of down structure as it does in uh, uh, the nfl um so you have six tackles uh, once you're tackled six times, the ball turns over to the opposition. So similar to the down concept. So yeah. it's a lot simpler to watch. Um, but rugby league is predominantly played in uh, the UK and in Australia and New Zealand uh, and sort of the uh, uh, Pacific territories, whereas rugby union is much uh, broader in its international mm -hmm. reach uh, and has therefore had a lot more investment. In it. So generally speaking, it's very early kind of in we'll just call it the analytics of rugby given that it it's just become professional in the last two three decades yeah it is although one of the observations i always make about rugby and uh rugby is a sport that, that i still play and coach now and and one of the things i've seen a lot is that because when rugby became professional although it didn't have a huge amount of investment they latched on to the analysis idea very early on hmm. you know okay. it took football it took soccer a long time to actually get to the point where 
coaches were looking at video in a lot more, a lot of detail and looking at data. Rugby embraced that a lot earlier, and I'd recommend anyone who's listening to go and watch the um, the British Lions documentaries, mm-hmm. uh, which covers a, a team that tours every four years and to Australia, South Africa, or New Zealand from from the British Isles, and it's a really great behind the scenes documentary that's that's on every four years that gives you a great insight into how important analysis is in rugby you know if, if anyone turns on a rugby match you will often see the camera pan to the box where the uh, the coaches are very similar to the coaching box in the nfl and there will be three or four screens set up they'll be looking at multiple angles they'll be looking at the data live during the game so rugby and rugby coaches particularly embraced analysis and video a lot quicker than soccer did. They don't have as much of it. They don't have as much data. They don't have as much detailed data. There isn't as much tracking data, for example, in rugby as there is in soccer or in in the other sports. So the data is a bit more event-based, a bit more basic. But their embracing of it has been um, probably a a much greater and quicker rate than than we've had in soccer. So circling back to soccer, uh, you've mentioned AI, computer vision a couple times, and those are things I think anyone who you saw the stats perform booth at Sloan or look at the site, you know, these are very important things to stats perform in the future of analytics. So give us kind of the the beginner's version of this. How how is stats perform building on event level data and or player tracking data to this next step of incorporating AI, incorporating computer vision into the analysis? I think AI and machine learning as terms have become, you know, mm-hmm. very well used, if not overused at times. Right. For sure. Um, and so I think that's just a generic term for the, for the type of kind of data science modeling that we're doing. What we're trying to do is just take this enormous data set that we have, uh, a mix of data sets, whether that's the most basic fixture scorecard uh, data that we have, you know, the type of, of scorecard data that is readily available for every sport over multiple years, you know, there's still an enormous amount of value you can drive from that basic data set. You then have event data, as you said, player tracking data in multiple sports now. To be able to get real value from this and to be able to generate the kind of insights that we want to generate for coaches or for broadcasters or, or media or betting, you know, we have to apply these Kind of machine learning concepts, I think, is, is a better way of term, terming it than AI. Um, training these data sets on, or training these models on huge data sets to try and find those trends or those um, those patterns in our data that, as humans, we would be unable to find. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still very much guided. You know, we're asking, we're asking the questions of, of generally what we want to identify, what type of patterns or what area of the game are we trying to look at. But we are then asking the model to to find those patterns and to find where those interesting insights are. That's really a uh, kind of simple, very oversimplified. I'm sure my AI engineers would tell me, but you know, <laughs> yeah. it's a, a simplified way of, of saying what we're trying to do, which is is to gain greater insight into this huge data set that we have and and be able to quantify things that were previously impossible or very difficult to quantify. Things like the shape of a team, the positioning of players and how their relationship to each other from a distance perspective or from a, uh, how they influence each other from a technical perspective. You know, how does that influence the success of the team overall? You know, being able to crunch every X, Y coordinate at every 25 frames of a second 
Right. It was impossible for a human to mm-hmm. do it. And to then apply that and say, well, how does the left back affect the positioning of the central midfielder when we're trying to press in the top third of the pitch? Right. You know, those things, we can try and direct the models in, in that direction, but ultimately we need the, the machine learning capabilities to identify what those insights are and to tell us what the patterns are. So, so that's really kind of what we're trying to do uh, from a, a model perspective. And then what we also use AI and, and more computer vision for is the generation of new data. Um, so anyone who you know will look up Stats Perform or, or look on um, things that we've done at Sloan recently will see we uh, the work we're doing with AutoStats, uh, which is mm-hmm. computer vision generated data. We, we apply a model to a, a, a broadcast video and are able to pull data from that video, um, pull the tracking of the players, the movement of every player that we can see on the screen, and then generate insights into uh, different actions that those players take. Uh, so whether that's a bounce pass uh, into the post in basketball, you know, a rebound, advancing into things like screen patterns and you know where teams are applying screens to create space for higher value shots, um, or in soccer, you know, similar concepts around expected goals. You know, if we move these defenders using a ghosting concept if we move this defender right. and he's not here what how does that increase the, the chance of scoring so those types of things are kind of what we're using computer vision to actually generate data that we don't have access to currently to collect tracking data you have to have cameras in stadiums and that's both expensive and means it's not easy to get a lot of it whereas with pulling the, the data from the video that means we can get a lot of it from the vast amount of video that we have access to yeah, that makes a lot of sense. If nothing else, it's I mean it's a huge time saver for people or teams. Yeah. And it gives you actually something instead of the example about removing a defender. You could theorize that if we can pull them out of the way, this would happen. If you have a way to quantify it or at least expand your, your theory, then it gives you uh, a lot of advantages there. Just a, a couple kind of lighter things before we dive into our playing favorite segments. You mentioned working at Fulham when they reached the Europa League final in 2010 which means you were at least involved or at the game when Clint Dempsey chipped in probably the best goal an American's ever scored in Europe against Juventus in the quarters. What do you remember about that game and that experience? Yeah, it's it's a funny period of time because um, so actually I joined the club. Uh, I'd been offered the, the role of the club uh, the week before that game um, because as part of my uh, interview process, I actually had to do a task on the preparing, uh, doing a kind of fake opposition analysis of Juventus. Um, so I was given some video and, and given some data and I had to pull together a kind of opposition analysis report hmm. um, as part of my interview. So I was very heavily invested in that game from a, from a job perspective, career perspective, as much as, as you know, wanting my hopefully future employer to do well and, and to get to the semifinal. So I was off the job and, and that, that game that that was one of the the most incredible moments I've ever had in in soccer, and, and that was even before I was really attached to the club. I'd only met a couple of people at that point. That performance from a team that was one of the most underdog teams in European history, I think, um, and to to beat Juventus, to then go on and, and beat Hamburg in the semi final, um, and to go and take Atletico Madrid pretty close in a, mm-hmm. in a, in a 2-1 loss in, in Hamburg um, was an incredible uh, story for that team. And, you know, Clint was a, was a huge part of it, not only in that year, but, but in the following years when we 
went back into Europe and, and continued to do well in the Premier League. You know, he, he was a huge part of it and was not the first and, and not the last American to have an impact at Craven Cottage. Either, so. Yeah, for sure. Was that uh, was that your analysis? Clint needs to try and chip the keeper from 20 yards yeah, out? Just, just take on Buffon from 20 yards. Yeah, yeah I'm sure yeah. that's... If I'd have given that advice, I probably wouldn't have got the job. But uh, <laughs> Clint definitely had some skills that baffled all of us yeah. at times. Yeah, he, he tried stuff, uh, as, as Bruce Arena said. You are, I think, yeah. it's safe to say, one of the biggest American sports fans in the UK. How did that come about for you? And why in the world did you decide to root for all the Boston teams? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I imagine anyone listening to this will, will kind of jump to the conclusion as to why I might follow Boston sports teams. But um, yeah. Yeah, my, my wife would definitely call it an obsession uh, with American sports, as you guys well know. But um, yeah, it kind of started with growing up um, in the UK, we didn't see a lot of US sports. Um, there was a bit of NFL on at the time. Um, there had been a lot in the 80s, and then it kind of in the 90s, there wasn't a great deal. They used to show an NHL game on, a, on one of our national TV channels, obviously very late at night. Um, so I used to catch that occasionally. Uh, but the big thing was basketball. You know, we had a on a Sunday afternoon, we had uh, a basketball NBA highlights show, which was an hour on one of our national TV channels. And then immediately afterwards was Serie A uh, soccer, uh, two games of Serie A soccer. So my Sundays were pretty sad from when I was about 10 years old, mm-hmm. um, was watching, watching the NBA and then watching Serie A. So that kind of really started it. And Opposite to my now Boston fandom, um, I was a big Kobe fan when I was growing up because uh, the you know Lakers were doing really well and right. I only saw highlights on TV. So you know you kind of gravitate towards the Lakers, and so I had a Kobe jersey, and you know that was the team I followed. <laughs> I had a friend who went on to who I played cricket with growing up. He went on to Boston uh, College on a soccer scholarship. Ended up getting drafted by the New England Revolution. So a few of us kind of started sp- following Boston sports. And there's just something in my head, I think, that just whenever I see a sport I don't know, I want to go and find out more about it. And I think the combination of US sports, basketball, and then falling into the other sports and the kind of Boston connection. The first Super Bowl I watched um, was my first year at university was the 2007 Super Bowl with <laughs> the Patriots losing to, to Eli and the Giants and, and, and that catch by David Terry. So at that point, I... I didn't know a lot about the Patriots and, and assumed they were kind of some kind of underdog, I think, at that point. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. so that uh, that went really well, actually. The, the, yeah. the last 13 years have, have been really good. Yeah, um, you, so, yeah good timing, yes. for sure. Are, are you okay it's now that Tom Brady has left for the Buccaneers? you handling that all right? Yeah, it's been tough. It's been tough. Uh, I have to say, a, a colleague of mine is a, a Bucks fan, so he's been rubbing my nose in it. But uh, <laughs> I, I like to think we got the best years out of TV12, so very fortunate to have been able to watch him live on a number of occasions, both in the UK and and in Foxborough. So um, I think we've done pretty well with him and uh, and a number of a number of that group over the last uh, twenty years. Yeah, yeah, we've we'll had a good it. run for sure. All right, we're going to wrap things up here with Absolutely. our our playing favorites segment, ripping through a number of your favorites. So, what's your favorite number and why? Uh, so number fourteen. Uh, it's both my birthday and it was my favorite hockey player growing up. He was a Dutch player called Turn de Neuer. I think he probably took it from Johan Cruyff. Um, so it was also the first number I wore for playing for Wales. So yeah, so does that uh, answer the question as far as your favorite athlete growing up? Would he, would he be your answer? Yeah, he would have been one of them, yeah. Um, I'd say the other two would have been David Beckham uh, as a 
United fan growing sure. up in the class of 92 years um, and Kobe um, definitely Kobe right. you have a favorite game any sport that you have attended in Europe uh, yeah I mean <clears throat> it's a bit of a, a an odd one it's not one of the biggest soccer matches that's ever happened but mm-hmm. um, as well as being a Manchester United fan uh, one of my local teams is, is Tranmere Rovers yeah playing in the uh, cu- currently playing in the third tier of, uh, of English soccer uh, Tranmere went to back-to-back playoff finals uh, in the last two seasons um, and in the 2018 final we went down to 10 men after 40 seconds uh, <laughs> with a red card um, but still managed to win the game 2-1 and, and get promoted so that was that was probably the one of my favorite games I've been at in the last few years nice how about in America I know you've been to more NBA and NHL games than I have uh, <laughs> and I grew up here although no teams in in my area but what's your favorite game that you've attended here in America I mean, going to Foxborough for the first time, uh, having watched the Pats actually in, at Wembley uh, once before, uh, seeing the Pats mm-hmm. live in Foxborough was pretty incredible. But I think my first trip to Fenway was was probably the yeah. the, the most memorable. Uh, it's it's an incredible place, um, and it happened to be against the Royals, so mm-hmm. I picked that one out just for you. Uh, I appreciate that. Yeah. Okay. Finally, yeah. favorite. How did I get here? Moment for you. I mean, one of those moments where. You just kind of realize this is pretty cool. This track I've chosen, I've gotten to good places. Uh, favorite, how did I get here moment? I've been fortunate to have a lot of those. Um, I think the biggest one for me, though, was standing in the tunnel, both uh, at Craven Cottage and then also at, at Old Trafford mm. uh, with the United team and, uh, and Alex Ferguson. Seeing Fergie talk to his, his troops in the tunnel before the game and then and then walk out. He was He was always very gracious with... The opposition staff as well, you know, came and shook our hands and, uh, and said hello. So, you know, as a huge United fan growing up in that successful period, to be stood in the, in the tunnel with him and, and opposite that team, you know, was a, a pretty incredible moment that uh, I'll certainly never forget. That's a good story for us to wrap things up with. So Ben McCreel, head of team performance product strategy at Stats Perform. Thanks for joining us here on Expected Value. Thanks, Back in the True Media Studios, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks again to Stats Perform's Ben McCreel for joining us on the pod. You can follow him on Twitter at Ben McCreel, B-E-N-M-A-C-K-R-I-E-L-L. Check our show notes for other links to Stats Perform and things we talked about on the show. I'm joined now by True Media Senior Director Albert Lakata, who's also known and worked with Ben for several years. Albert, what did you take away from the conversation? Yeah, always good to hear from Ben. I'm a little upset you didn't get into some other sports. Ben is the most Americanized Brit you'll ever meet in your life. But Yeah, we ran out of time a little bit. (laughs) The most interesting piece to me, which maybe because I'm biased because I kind of liked these sports before, but cricket and rugby, his his insights into that, um, Mm -hmm. specifically how in match those two sports use data and analytics quite a bit. Um, a lot more than several of the U.S. sports. And a lot of that is because of the technology ban that comes mostly in the NFL and a little bit in MLB as well, which really hinders the... I mean, in in NFL, it basically prohibits the use of of technology. Uh, On MLB, it restricts it quite a bit. So it's just interesting Mm -hmm. to hear in rugby and cricket how... sort I think you mentioned if any given high-level rugby match, you look up and you have three or four data guys just watching video, watching the data and stats flow through, radioing that down to the bench. And it's it's pretty interesting how that works. And 
how 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 much it's not like that in uh, NFL and uh, MLB. Related to that, on the rugby side, just being a relatively newer game, how they right. it became a lot easier for them to integrate their processes and decision making and use data, become more reliant on data early, mm-hmm. just because there wasn't much precedent that needed to change. Yeah. So yeah, those are two of my high level thoughts. Yeah, it definitely helps them to just have come around a little bit later. You're at a, a smaller level than a Premier League or something, which is going to institute a lot of rules. And yeah, it kind of reminds me, MLB, I was just reading uh, MVP Machine by Travis Sachik and Ben Lindbergh, and it's about how players are thinking differently and doing things differently. And one thing that it touched on was how the current MLB CBA, which runs through 2021, of course, that could change with everything that's going on, but it bans almost all wearable technology during games except for i think it was four or five different things and there's some you could only use uh, outside of the game itself there are a few more in the minor league so i'll be really interested to see what the next step is after that 2021 cba are we going to see sensors on the bats or other wearable tech that teams might come up it'll, it'll just be interesting to see what the next jump is because there's definitely a potential for for teams to uh, try to find more edges by doing that, find that one or two more things that you really like and that you've been using in batting practice or whatever and transfer that to games. So that'll be interesting for me to see with the new CBA takes effect in a couple of years. Right. There's a very interesting documentary on Amazon prime right now called the test, which is mm-hmm. uh, it's about Australia's cricket team, some, you know, trials and tribulations that they went through. And it's, it, it's very interesting. It, it's really interesting for, for a, a American to watch. I feel because it's, you learn a lot about cricket, but you don't really need to know a lot about cricket when you watch it. Right. So I, I found it pretty interesting. But the, the reason I bring it up is during it, you see throughout the matches that Australia is playing how much you have these people, sort of like the backroom staff who are you know mm-hmm. up in the booth watching data come in, watching all the video come in, giving information out that just – it would be really, really fascinating to see if – you know, for example, in the NFL, if, if you could actually like know things about the team and know just even basic stats, it, it, NFL teams at any given point don't even know, for example, how many passing yards their quarterback has in the game because they have no access to internet. So there's just really simple things that, that could be gained there mm-hmm. that you, you just, you see the results of it in other sports. And it's it yep. pretty clear when you watch that documentary, how yeah. it works in cricket. Yeah, NFL now is the tablets on the sideline, but what's the next thing? That'll be interesting is with all the player tracking data and stuff. One other thing that I thought was uh, interesting, and Ben and I have talked about this uh, before, which is kind of why I brought it up here, is why make that jump from a club to uh, the business side? And just curious about it, because he even said, you know, working for a club is kind of the pinnacle. And I think that's what draws a lot of people uh, into the industry. So him explaining that it, it paralleled you know some of the reasons frankly like why i left espn maybe why you left too there are benefits on on both sides you know other companies can have maybe it's more normal hours or a less stressful work environment or in ben's case you know you get a lot more job security uh, with an opta than you're going to have with a team that may turn over staff every year or two uh, so it's all not to discourage anyone from working for teams because those highs are probably higher than anything you'll find anywhere else uh, it's more just this is this is my life advice just to be aware of all the factors as you look for jobs in the analytics industry just factor everything in quality of life etc as you you try to find your role all right that'll wrap things up for episode 27 of expected value thanks to stats performs ben mccreel for joining us on the show 
We have several other soccer-centric episodes in our archives, including Ravi Ramaneni of the Seattle Sounders in March, several guests from February's OptiPro Forum, Taylor Twelman from ESPN, Lucy Rushton of Atlanta United, all in there. While you're in the archives, if you could subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get podcasts, that would be a great big help. And spreading the word on social media is also appreciated. On behalf of Albert Larcata and everyone here at True Media, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks for listening to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. Thank you.